Today's episode is brought to you by Megan Fernandez's Good Boys. In this collection, Fernandez offers a complex portrait of messy feminist rage, negotiations with race and travel and existential dread in the Anthropocene. Kava Akbar calls Good Boys a staggering text, ferocious, vulnerable, funny, ambitious, and deeply rigorous. He asks, what can a poet do for people, for a planet literally dying of human greed? Fernandez answers, I map the storms of the whole world. Brenda Shaughnessy says Megan Fernandez's limitless imagination and beautiful, lyrical, powerful lines are worth fighting for. Everyone should give this book to someone they love, and everyone should love someone enough to give them this book. Good Boys is available now from Tin House Books. This latest episode of Tin House Live is a craft talk that Alexander Chi gave at the 2016 Tin House Summer Writers Workshop called From First Draft to Plot. Alexander Chi is a professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth College, a Whiting Award winner, most recently the author of How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, and hopefully a future between the covers guest for whatever he writes next. This talk is one that warrants multiple listenings, ranging from how to shape one's life experiences into a fictional framework, to the importance of reading outside of American literature, to why we should move toward, not shy away from things that seem taboo or that maybe don't seem at first like art at all. Themes that echo nicely with some of what Garth Greenwell talked about in our last episode. Similar to the Jericho Brown Tin House Live episode, this may sound better listening to it in the room rather than with headphones or earbuds. There's a small amount of extraneous microphone sounds that you'll only notice with headphones, but even then you'll surely be pulled forward by cheese insight after insight. If today's episode is your first encounter with Between the Covers, you can subscribe to Between the Covers with your favorite podcast app. You can also find the archive and subscribe at tinhouse.com slash podcasts. And you can also find out more about what is available if you become a supporter of Between the Covers at patreon.com slash Between the Covers. And now for Alexander Chi and his talk, From First Draft to Plot. The idea for this uh, craft talk comes approximately from uh, the experience I had writing uh, my first novel. And the experience of that for me was that I had, uh, in a fit of frustration over being unable to sell a more ambitious novel about something else, I decided very cynically that I was going to write what I called just another shitty autobiographical novel um, <laughs> about my life and just try to debut that way instead. That became my first novel, Edinburgh. Um, it's hard to maintain a cynical attitude for a long time. I did try. Um, go ahead, <laughs> if you must. But I think, you know, I was trying to figure out how to make sense of the materials of my life, how to use that to 
make something that would show people what I know about life, love, the world, etc. Um, it's, I think most of us, if not all of us, when we begin writing a novel, are driven toward the shape of something that we can only barely apprehend. And that certainly was how I started. Um, I did begin with the most recent events of my life at the time, which were that I was helping my mom move from uh, our family house after a bankruptcy that she had just gone through, uh, and moving to a rental where she was going to uh, try and put her life back together. Um, the bankruptcy came after a period where she had lost both of her parents and my father. Um, and uh, it was a, a kind of profound crisis for her. And when I arrived, I found her in a kind of uh, what seemed to me to be a nervous breakdown. Uh, everything was where the movers had left it. Nothing was unpacked. And so I just began helping so I began writing a description of that scene that led to a story about a young man who comes home to help his mother in this way. Um, I wrote about 120 pages and sent it to my agent at the time. And she said, the writing's really good. Nobody's going to believe this many bad things happened to one person. Uh, and the writing really picks up around page 90. <laughs> so what I realized was that the manuscript I had turned in was a lot like my mom's house, something that had been decorated uh, where things had happened, where things were left. Uh, it had no intentional shape, and thus uh, no propulsive drive. Um, the story of a life is not a novel, and that's just one of the many things that you have to learn along the way. I looked at page 90. Uh, page 90 was where uh, the writing went into the present tense, uh, it was also where I was thinking the most, I began thinking the most deeply about my own particular past, in particular uh, the events of my childhood age, like 11 to 15, when I had been in a professional boys' choir uh, and the director was eventually arrested on 15 counts of pedophilia. Um, and the real story was there. Now, for any number of reasons, I did not want to keep using my story. So what I kept were the situations, but not the events of my life. Um, I invented a character who was like me, but not me. And I put him into situations that were like the situations I had been in, but were not the situations I had been in. I did research 
into uh, into sexual abuse, into the wildlife and the plants of Maine. Uh, I realized that things that I remembered, like something that I thought of as like that red flower in the field, um, that was not a very specific description. Um, I needed specifics, but I also needed a plot. And so I turned to Aristotle's poetics, particularly the rules for tragedy, and looked at the principles that he laid out there and used that to create the plot of the novel. And so one of the, uh, one of my favorite compliments on the novel is when someone asked me if it, um, if it was based on a Greek myth. And I said, no, but thank you. That was the point. <laughs> um, in particular, I was after uh, a couple of things. One of them was uh, I wanted a story that was able to bring catharsis, which I think is something that uh, is undervalued, possibly, in our current age. Uh, which is ironic given uh, how much tragedy there is right now. I also wanted to make something that was bigger than my life. And I was writing something that fit to the shape of what I knew, but not the shape of what I had lived. And so the invented story was necessary. I was also trying to preserve what I think of as uh, the... I wanted to preserve the integrity of the experiences of the people around me in my life at the time that I was writing of. Uh, I wanted to tell a story that was mine but that was not theirs. And that seemed very important. A first draft is a lot like a character sketch. In it, uh, especially at the beginning of writers' careers, uh, it is a series of explorations. Uh, you often have not done any research or not enough research. You have usually uh, kicked a number of decisions down the road, uh, thinking that, you know, oh, I'll just decide that later. Um, I don't need to know how many siblings my character has. I don't need to know uh, what my character's mom does for a living. I don't need to know uh, where my character's family is from. Uh, you may decide that backstory is bullshit, um, uh, that you're really committed to minimalism. <laughs> uh, none of that really matters, actually. It doesn't matter what you want. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, what matters is what the story wants. And... You know, what, what I would recommend for you is something a little along the lines of an exercise that I had to do in college when I studied with Annie Dillard, where she had us write 40 legal pages of notes on a subject and then turn that into a seven-page triple-space draft. 
Um, she insisted we turn things in triple space uh, so that she could write around our sentences. Um, she always had a lot to say, um, for which I was very lucky. Uh, but that is essentially, I think, th- your best way of approaching the construction of your novel and, in particular, your plot, uh, which is to say, know so much more than you're going to tell if you can bring yourself to do it. Most often, the problems I experience uh, with my students, the problems that they're having, that I find them having in the 20 years that I've been teaching uh, fiction writing, most often those problems come from decisions that have not been made about the story. The writer Emile Zola uh, used a method that I recommend highly uh, to to write about his characters in what he called character cards. Um, And he wrote about them in ways that he would never write about them in the novel itself. Um, He included information like the character of their character, what kind of jokes they would make. Would they lie or would they tell the truth? Uh, What were their favorite meals? When did they lose their virginity? Who did they lose it to? Who were they having an affair with at the time of the story starts? Who were they having an affair before? Who might they have an affair with after? Uh, Did the character come from any of his other novels? In many cases, they did. Uh, How much had he written about them in those novels? Where were their families from? Where were their rivals from? Who were their rivals? Uh, In the process, he creates a web of the information surrounding a character that helps the writer do something that I call betraying the character, which is to say to provide information that the character might never want anyone to know about them, but that is required for the story to be told. So uh, one of the exercises that I found the most useful uh, for finding plots uh, is adapting the questions or the positions rather, for a tarot card reading. How many of you have ever had your tarot cards read? Okay. So the Celtic cross reading is probably one of the most popular. Um, I don't think it's actually Celtic. I think it's just called that. (laughs) Uh, But the important thing about it is that it contains things like questions like, what does this person look like to the rest of the world? What has just happened that is leaving their life? What is about to happen that is entering their life? Uh, what is on their minds? What is in their unconscious? Um, who are the friends that they're not aware of? Uh, What are their hopes and fears? 
These are very basic questions. They're usually not in any of the kind of character building exercises that I see. But these are precisely the kinds of things that you need to know to understand how to build a plot organically for your character. Um, you have to be willing to know the things uh, that they aren't even willing to tell themselves. Usually where we start with these things is that we have a scene, two scenes, three scenes. Um, often just a scene. And the principle that I use in those situations, it comes out of uh, Guy Davenport's theory about the still life painting, the way to think of a still life. And uh, it's very basic. He says, you know, a still life implies the life lived around the objects. And so does that first scene, uh, whether you're aware of it or not. Um, the other big problem I find with student drafts besides uh, unmade decisions is uh, that implications in the initial scenes have not been dealt with. And sometimes the draft, as a result, will be a pile of inventions um, with implications that are still unmet. And because the implications are unmet, the writer keeps inventing things, thinking the writer has nothing to write about, when in fact the writer is ignoring what the writer has already written. So then, what am I talking about? Uh, the example I'll give you is, uh, is from the writing of my second novel, The Queen of the Night. The first scenes that I had for that novel are now the end of the novel. Um, I did not know that at the time. I thought it was the beginning. Um, and well, that's one of the big lessons in particular with writing novels is that oftentimes uh, the first pages that you write are not the beginning of the novel. They're only where you started writing the novel. So, in particular, uh, what I had was an opera singer on a circus train walking along the cars at night. Uh, she's just retired from her career on the stages of Europe. Uh, she's traveling with a circus, performing in it, in a singing role. Uh, she has regrets, and she's not talking to anyone about them. Uh, she is, however, writing something. And so the question I had to ask myself was, how did she get on that train? How did she end up in the circus? How did she become an opera singer? Where was she from? Who would she have studied with? and so on. And I built uh, the story and the plot both in this process of interrogating that scene again and again with questions. And each time that I got answers, asking more questions and pushing back into the story as far as 
it seemed I needed to go. Uh, one of the things that I was interested in writing about at the time was opera plots. And, you know, opera plots are intensely improbable creatures, uh, usually. They're filled with coincidences, which are considered very poor taste in literary fiction. Um, they are usually the stories of people who have been selected for uh, they've been chosen to be made examples of by the gods um, the, the idea behind those Greek tragedies that Aristotle was writing about was exactly that that uh, these people were there for us to understand something um, about how terribly they had acted now, I had also come across two different statements from two, or two similar statements from two very different writers, Joan Didion and Oscar Wilde. Um, <laughs> maybe they're more alike than I think. Um, uh, where they said, uh, what you write comes true. And it was this idea that uh, somehow the fiction that you wrote uh, would turn into a kind of prophecy about your life. Um, I would love to know what they thought came true out of what they wrote, but I didn't have that information. I just had this, what seemed to me like an intriguing superstition of a kind. And so I essentially wedded uh, the ridiculousness of opera plots to this idea and created uh, an opera singer who was afraid that the characters she portrays cause her to take on their fates in her real life. And so, as a result, her life has started to look like an opera. Now, this was uh, interesting to me in particular because I had also experienced an improbable number of coincidences in my life, not just terrible things. <laughs> And I was very interested in this idea that a coincidence meant something, that it was a message for you, which is exactly what it feels like when it happens. That feeling of, oh, this is meant to be, was the thing that I was trying to interrogate. Was it? Did you really believe that the universe had organized itself for you? If you did, what else did that mean you believed? Um, I was looking after uh, a way of talking about the bad decisions I had made because I had believed that. I was also, in the process, looking for unity between character, plot, and story. I think this is something that you don't exactly set out with. You end up with it after a great deal of struggle. You know, there are times when a novel or a story or a poem or an essay will come as easy as you can imagine. You'll write it uh, in a day, three weeks, maybe a year. The rest of the time, not so much. And uh, Jory Graham 
uh, has the belief that uh, the struggles that you engage in with other material clear the channel for those that come down like gifts. And I think that there's something to that. But the, the thing that I want to stress is this way in which what you're after is not just a plot, not just a character, uh, not just a backstory. Like, don't let yourself be confused by the disparate elements that often get tossed around uh, in discussions of craft. Um, there's a way in which I think a lot of these terms, things that, that began as descriptors, have turned into orthodoxies. And that strikes me as a mistake. The thing that you want is that relation, that sense of the world, the character in it, and the relationship between the character and the world. And you're also looking after the thing that can only happen to your character, and only because of that particular mix of what they are, what they want, uh, what they can and can't be. Um, all characters are a mix of that which they can change about themselves and that which they cannot, just like the rest of us. And understanding what those limits are is where you begin finding the plot that can only belong to your character. Now, if you wanted to use a particular formula, if you were after, say, the reinvention of a cliché, I think a lot of these same principles apply. You would be looking for the cliché that fits your character, as it were. Like if you, are, if you decided you want to write an adventure novel or a picaresque, if you decided you want to write a thriller, speculative fiction, space opera. Um, <laughs> I really want to write a space opera. Um, it's, uh, it comes back in some ways to that, to that one cliche, character is destiny. Um, character is also plot. And, uh, you know, the, the particular ways in which uh, something happens to someone, both in the fair way that they have chosen and the unfair way that they could never choose, but that happens to them because of who they are. The right plot is born out of all of those things. There are a few ways that I have come to think about plot that come to me from the things that I've read, and I'll offer them to you here in case they're of interest. Um, in Ann Carson's Eros the Bittersweet, she talks about early Greek modern novels being experiences of paradox. The idea that uh, the character is driven to do something that they must do, that they cannot do, but that they must do. And as they do it, they feel simultaneously that they have never been as sane as they are, and also that they've never been so crazy. E.M. Forster, in his aspects of the novel, talks about 
the moral crisis for a character who has to make decisions and he has to do so in the face of circumstances that defy the way he has made decisions previously. And so this character must keep making these decisions without the guides that have helped him previously and at the end uh, reaches for a new morality, a new way to live. I think that, you know, other, other aspects of plot that are normally described, rising action, climax, etc., uh, I don't know. I've always hated the word climax. <laughs> I think it comes from growing up in the 90s and the 80s and the 70s. Maybe we don't all hate it. But it seems to overfocus on one particular moment when, in fact, uh, what you should be paying attention to is what I call uh, the, chain of, the chain of circumstance how one thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing, leads to another thing. I think of uh, plot as a description of a series of displacements, uh, the way in which something new enters into a place and transforms it, and you follow the power of the transformation. Um, that place can be a person's head, it can be a city, a country, a house, etc. I would encourage you, if you have not already, to begin reading as widely as possible away from American literature. The reason for this is that there are many more structures for the telling of stories than the way stories are told here. Uh, in their most popular forms. And what you want to attack is your unconscious idea of the novel or the story or the movie. Whatever you unconsciously believe these things to be is what you will write. And so transforming your sense of those, then uh, reading your way towards new ideas for story, for plot, uh, I think becomes very important. Um, for example, uh, I was, during the writing of my second novel, uh, I was also reading a lot of Japanese comics, in particular, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, which uh, is probably pretty well known. Is, is this ringing any bells in the audience? A few people. What I realized uh, at a certain point in structuring my book was that I needed something that resembled these comics. A big story that was composed out of a series of episodes. And each episode told a story inside of it and also moved the big story forward. Um, there was not 
a climax as much as a series of them spread out in different stories throughout the novel. This was a huge relief because I had been trying to do the rising action thing for a very long time <laughs> and that had not been successful. Borrowing from other forms like this is, uh, I think, a sort of necessary act that it would be easy to inhibit out of a sense of what is good and bad taste. And so, in addition to reading as widely as possible from these other literatures, I also encourage uh, that you try to attack your idea of what is good and bad taste in the process. Someone was uh, talking to me earlier about what, like, was the sex in her novel pornographic? Um, it had been accused of being so in class by someone. Not here. Um, and what I didn't mention to her uh, precisely because it wasn't entirely germane to the topic was pornography has plots. <laughs> Even if uh, it doesn't seem like it. And, uh, and those plots lead you to specific expectations about what will and will not happen. And those expectations are then a part of the, mo the story's momentum in that particular pornography. Um, Angela Carter wrote a spectacular book about it, uh, excuse me, called The Saudian Woman, uh, in which she examines the structure of pornographic plots uh, and puts forward the idea that the Marquis de Sade was the first moral pornographer, um, which is interesting. Um, but more to the point, I became interested in the idea during this conversation of a novel that was structured like pornography or using a pornographic plot. I think the, the idea that you have to stay away from something because it's disgusting or it's lewd uh, is precisely why you should approach it. Um, that there's a way in which um, we should all be writing towards uh, the real taboos of a culture, not just the known ones, the ones that we can name, but the ones that we're still too freaked out to actually talk about. You know, in a, in a sense, I think of plots as a way to approach the making of the, the the making of the invisible into the visible. I think of plot as a net that reaches toward a topic more than some kind of invasion of something unwelcome, which is, I think, how often it is thought of now. Fiction is a way of thinking about something, a very serious way of thinking about it, and it's often not included in the ways we think about writing. And it's not just a meditation. It's a violent dream. It's a sex dream. It's a phantasm. Uh, 
It's a ghost. Uh, it's any and all of these things. It's more than that. And if you're stuck right now, if you feel like you don't have a plot, start asking these kinds of questions of the story, the character, yourself. Are you writing about what you want to be writing about? Um, that may seem like a ridiculous thing to say, but it is so easy to labor uselessly in a codependent way based on what you think people want to hear from you.